Well, let's turn at this time in our copies of God's Word to Paul's epistle to the Romans. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. Well, let's listen now to God's holy word, beginning in Romans 3 and verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, No flesh will be justified in His sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. May the Lord bless this reading of His Holy Word to us this morning. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help this morning, let's turn back to Romans chapter 3 as we continue our consideration of what Paul has to say about the natural man, about mankind as he has been conceived and born in sin, whether Jew or Greek, whatever nation, background, geographical location. What Paul says here is true of all of us by nature as we have inherited a fallen nature from our father Adam. And we focus our attention this morning on really the second half of verse 11 and the beginning of verse 12. But let me just read verses 10 through 12. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Paul, of course, is seeking to establish the universal unrighteousness of fallen man so that he can demonstrate the desperate need that we all have for the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. The righteousness of faith. The righteousness of God that God bestows upon sinners that God enabled to come to pass by sending His Son into the world who took the punishment for sinners 
who perfectly fulfilled the demands of God's law, even unto death on the cross, obedient unto death, rose again victorious for our justification, and thereby all who call upon the name of the Lord by faith are justified, are declared legally righteous in the courtroom of heaven, and by God's grace in the courtroom of conscience. They can have full assurance of eternal life and blessedness in the presence of God forever. But in order to demonstrate all of these things, Paul has to establish the reason that we need these things. He has to prove that the natural man, the fallen man, is corrupted by sin in every aspect, is disqualified from being righteous and fit for heaven, righteous in the sight of God's courtroom. He's he's corrupt, he's guilty, he's disqualified for a righteousness wrought out by himself. And he's so corrupt that he's actually incapable of seeking God, incapable of true repentance, incapable of true and saving faith. Now we've said before that the natural man, to one degree or another, uh, has various levels of sinfulness, various degrees of sinfulness. We're not saying that every human being is as sinful as they could possibly be. In fact, 2 Timothy 3.13 says that evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse. So those evil men weren't as bad as they could be because they got worse. Uh, And that's one of numerous passages we could go to. But man is not as evil as he could be, but he's evil in every department, every aspect of his humanity, and thereby disqualified from personal righteousness and unable and incapable of saving faith. That's Paul's thesis here. And so what he's saying is that mankind needs to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit needs to be born again so he can see and enter the kingdom of God, as Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3. And that by faith he needs to receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ to cleanse away his sin and clothe him in Christ's perfection so that he might be acceptable in the Beloved. And to that end, this morning we consider a certain aspect of Paul's uh, discourse here. He says this at the end of verse 11, there is none who seeks after God. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. These two things go together. Paul has already said that that mankind by nature has a sinful conduct, a sinful lifestyle. None of them is righteous. Not one. He said that man is corrupt in his thoughts. Nobody understands. Nobody has even a desire to understand. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. But not only the conduct and the mind, he says here, the will, the heart. There is none who seeks after God. Nobody wants to come to God. Nobody seeks after Him. Even when they're confronted with the Word of God, I mean, you have these unchurched pagans, these Gentiles that never have seen a Bible, Paul's addressing them, that they ought to seek God, but they don't. He's saying even the Jews who have the entire Hebrew Bible, at least in our uh, order from Genesis to Malachi, they have it all. They're exhorted to seek. They're given many precious promises of Christ to come. 
But when He came, they didn't seek after God in the flesh. They turned aside from Him. And with the Gentile, Romans nailed Him to the cross. And Paul is saying that man is corrupt in his will. It's not as though he's just ignorant and we should feel sorry for fallen man. No, no. He's not seeking God. He's not taking his opportunity to come to God. He's been invited through the creation in a general way to seek, but specifically through the Word of God, he's been beckoned and he has turned aside. There is none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. Of course, he's quoting this from the Psalms and more could be said there. But to begin our consideration here of these words, we have to recognize first of all that all men by nature are designed and commanded and invited and able to seek God in a general way. In a general way. All men by nature are designed, commanded, invited, and able to seek God by way of a general inquiry. It is possible for this natural fallen man or woman in this passage to seek God in a certain way, in a general way, and he or she is commanded and invited to do so, whether by way of general revelation. We see this in Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, as Paul is addressing the Greek philosophers and uh, groupies and all these people that want to hear about what Paul has to say at the Areopagus uh, on Mars Hill in Athens. Acts 17.24, he says, God who made the world and everything in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is He worshipped with men's hands as though He needed anything since He gives to all life, breath, and all things. And He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for Him and find Him though He is not far from each one of us. So in the sense of a general inquiry after the Creator, God has designed this world in such a way that even people who don't hear the Gospel and never have seen a Bible, and for that reason have no hope of salvation at that point, nevertheless, they see the good gifts of God. They see the works of God. They recognize that there is a God, and they say, I wonder who or what this God is. And God has designed the world to provoke that type of response, that type of general inquiry after the identity and characteristics of the Creator. Romans 1 tells us that the creation and the conscience of man, in a sense, reveals these things. Reveals the character of God, His eternal power and divine nature. And yet they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. But they are designed... All mankind, all men, all women are designed to look at the heavens declaring His glory, to look at the firmament showing forth His handiwork, and to inquire, to seek who made this. You see this even among the pagan Greek philosophers, but as Paul says in Romans 1, sadly, uh, this pursuit was very quickly corrupted by human ideas and human preferences shaping God after their own image. 
but they are invited and they are able to seek God in that general way. Also by way of special revelation. Even unconverted people within earshot of the ministry of the Gospel in the church of Jesus Christ who have special revelation, they have the Bible, they have the Word of God preached and expounded to them. Uh, Though they're unconverted, though, as we'll see in a moment, they're unable to seek God in one sense, but they are designed and commanded and invited and fully able to seek God by way of a general inquiry. And this is also reflected in what the Apostle Paul says in Acts chapter 17 when he's in the city of Athens. Uh, We're told that as Paul was reasoning in the synagogue and then uh, speaking to people about Christ in the marketplace each day, verse 18, then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him and some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. So here they receive an exposition of special revelation. Paul's preaching the gospel. He's preaching Jesus. He's preaching the resurrection. He's preaching it in the synagogue. He's explaining it to people in the marketplace to the Gentiles. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. And then he gave that speech and preached that sermon. So they came in contact with special revelation and they were interested. They inquired. They said, hmm, I want to hear more about this. Like Zacchaeus, for instance. Zacchaeus heard something of who Jesus was and he was a short man. He climbed up into the sycamore tree and he he tried to see Jesus as he was coming by to get a glimpse of Him and to find something more about Him. Nicodemus of the Pharisees, came in contact certainly with special revelation. He probably knew the Hebrew Bible backwards and forwards. He was the teacher of Israel, John 3 says. And he also heard and saw the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he came to Jesus by night to inquire. The same is true of the rich young ruler. I think it's Mark or Luke says he ran to Jesus and knelt down at his feet and said, good teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? So he was able to seek God in Christ. He was able to seek out answers to his spiritual and theological questions by way of this general inquiry. So when we say there is none who seeks after God, we shouldn't use that as a sort of bludgeon when we, when we hear the general evangelical church say, well, there's such a thing as a seeker. And they come to church and they want to know what this Christian faith is all about. And they call them seekers. And then we say, well, no one seeks after God. Huh. And, and we're arrogant uh, in our attitude toward them. Well, actually, there are such seekers. The rich young ruler was not a converted man, yet he ran to Jesus and asked a question. Nicodemus at that point was not a converted man, nor was Zacchaeus. It was not until Jesus came to him, of course. But the point is, yes, people are seekers. There are people in your workplace, in your family, perhaps even here this morning in the church today, who who have heard about Jesus, heard something about the Bible, and are interested to learn more. Now, that is insufficient for salvation, but it is still seeking in a general way. And that's biblical. God has designed it 
to function that way, that people would seek and that there would be these seekers. Not that we would glorify and exaggerate the significance of someone in that situation. Again, the rich young ruler went and sought and didn't get what he was looking for and then his heart was hardened and he went away sorrowful. Insufficient for salvation. But yes, uh, all men are able to seek God by way of general inquiry. So Paul is not denying that by any stretch of the imagination. Secondly, in order to be saved from sin, the natural man must come to God personally and redemptively through Jesus Christ by way of faith, hope, and love. In order to be saved from sin, the natural man must come to God through Jesus Christ. He or she must come personally, not just by way of a general inquiry, opening up the Gospel of John and finding a random verse. No, not just coming to church and asking questions, but Jesus says that He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him, in Him, through personal faith in Him as Savior, Redeemer, Lord, and King. That's what is necessary in order for the natural man to be saved from sin. Personal saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Coming to God. Seeking God through Christ. And God promises to save to the uttermost all who come to Him through Christ. And seeking Him through Christ is expressed in the Scriptures in such a way that it points us to the various aspects of seeking God. Seeking Him first and foremost by faith. For instance, a very familiar verse. Hebrews 11.6 But without faith, it is impossible to please Him. That is God. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. So without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must come believing. What is it saying? If you're going to come to God, if you're going to seek God, you need to seek Him by faith, believing that He exists. There's sort of a general sense, but but it's beyond that. Not only believing that He exists, but believing according to His specially revealed covenant of grace and His Gospel promises, believing on the basis of that Word, Believing that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. So you come and you seek Him expecting to find Him. Because ultimately He is our exceeding great reward as He revealed to Abraham. And all other rewards flow from Him. So you must come believing. Jesus said, believe in God, believe also in Me. You have to believe. You have to believe Christ, that He's telling the truth in all the claims that He makes, in all the things that He reveals in His Word, in the Old and New Testament. You have to believe those promises. Believe what He says about your sin and how you can be saved from it and how you ought to live in a response of gratitude. But believing, you must seek Him by faith. Faith is a magnetic attraction that draws us into Christ and by which we flee and run and cling to Him. 
faith, but also hope out of that faith in what He is and what He promises to do at the moment of our conversion, forgiving all of our sins, welcoming us into His covenant, into the family of God, and and so forth. It's also a faith that projects into the future, which we call hope. The substance of things hoped for. That's faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. And so, believing that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him, and we know that the great reward in the book of Hebrews, especially Hebrews 11, that God's people in the Old Testament were looking ahead to by faith through hope, that that reward was future. It was a city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Hebrews chapter 11 speaks of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they were seeking and desiring that better country and that heavenly city. You see that in verse 14. Those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. Verse 16, they desire a better that is a heavenly country. Chapter 13 says that we seek the city which is to come. So there's an anticipation There's a faith in future blessings, who God is, how He's going to reward us both now and in the future as we diligently seek Him by faith, which produces hope. And one of the most powerful verses that reinforces seeking God in this believing and hopeful manner is Jeremiah 29, verse 11. Jeremiah 29, verse 11. This is the sort of verse that you might have on your fridge, uh, or you've seen it on a Christian t-shirt, or you've memorized it as a child. Uh, and sometimes it can be taken out of context and exaggerated, but, but there's something here for us. Jeremiah 29:11, "For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then, this is the future, then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord. So the Lord has thoughts. He has plans concerning us. Plans for hope. Plans for a future. Plans wherein we might find Him and enjoy Him both now and for all eternity. So much more could be said there, but we must seek Him in faith which produces hope and which culminates or or comes to fullest expression in love. In the Old Testament, which Paul is quoting here, seeking God is inseparable from loving God. Deuteronomy 4.29, just listen. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find Him if you seek Him with all your heart and with all your soul. Seeking God is not just with the mind. It's not just with the will. It's with the emotions. It's with our heart, our soul, with everything, delighting in Him, rejoicing in Him with every aspect of our being as it were just giving ourselves up to Him 
in love. Why? Because we can trust Him by faith. And we can trust in His future promises that He's good for these things, that we will find Him, and that He will reward us with Himself. And so we can just relax and surrender and give ourselves to Him with all of our heart and all of our soul and love Him and and keep His commandments. Song of Solomon 3 and verse 2 perhaps summarizes the Old Testament understanding of seeking God in this way. Perhaps it summarizes it best. Song of Solomon 3 verse 2 I will seek the one I love. I will seek the one I love. The previous verse she says, I sought Him, but I did not find Him. Then the end of verse 2, or verse 3, wherever it is, I will seek the one I love. I will seek the one I love. And that is true. You're, You're going to seek after the one that you love. You're going to diligently do what it takes to find and seek out and take hold of the things that you love, the ones that you love. If you're not seeking Him, it means you don't love Him. Why? Because you have no hope in Him. Why? Because you don't really believe what He said in His Word. So in order to be saved from sin, the natural man has to get to a place where he or she comes to God personally and redemptively through Jesus Christ by way of faith, which produces hope, which produces love. Thirdly, according to Paul, the natural man cannot seek God in this way. Why? Well, Paul tells us, the reason the natural man cannot seek God in this way through faith, hope, and love through Jesus Christ is because he has willfully turned aside to other things. It's very simple. There is none who seeks after Him. And actually that phrase, seeks after, is the same word that's elsewhere translated, seeks diligently. So it has the idea of chasing down, seeking after. Seeking diligently. No one seeks Him in that diligent, saving way through Christ because they've all turned aside. They've all turned aside to other things. God made man upright, but He has sought out many devices. Many devices. That verse has a new meaning uh, in our day. Many devices. People are seeking out all these alternatives, all these things, and they're flooding their lives with utter vanity. And they're not seeking the God who made them. They're not seeking the God who commands them to seek Him and who invites them to seek Him through the Gospel of Jesus Christ. They're not doing it. They've turned aside to other things. They've turned aside to various devices. And uh, Isaiah 53, verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each one in his own direction, with his own agenda going his or her own way. That's the picture. That's the universal picture of the natural man. They've all turned aside. What have they turned to? Well, they've turned to self. In fact, if you look at the context of the book of Romans here, Paul has already pointed this out for us in Romans 2, verse 8. He contrasts those 
who seek for glory, honor, and immortality in verse 7, with those in verse 8, to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. So the natural man is one who is self-seeking and does not obey the truth, but obeys unrighteousness. Why? Because he's seeking himself. Seeking himself. Jesus says in Luke 17, if you seek to save your own life, if you, if you seek your own life and your own self-preservation and your own pleasure and you want to preserve your own life against the demands of the Gospel and the suffering of the cross and all of the sacrifices and self-denial that being a Christian means that if you seek to save your own life, your own lifestyle then you're going to lose it. And the illustration he uses is Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. She's physically outside of the city of Sodom with the people of God. And yet her heart is still in Sodom. Her things, her possessions, her lifestyle, her friends. And her heart remains there. And so she looks back seeking those things in Sodom. Seeking herself. Seeking the lust of her eyes and of the flesh and of the pride of possessions. And she's turned into a pillar of salt. And Jesus says, remember that example. Remember that. People who seek to preserve themselves, their comfort, who seek to preserve all the things that they think are so important in this life, beware. Because when you seek those things, you lose those things. Psalm 10, which we sang, also describes this self-seeking. And of course, here we're talking about the self-seeking that dominates a person's life, a person who is unconverted. But eventually in our series on 1 Corinthians 13, our next uh, sermon text is going to be, love does not seek its own. So we'll apply this to the believer Lord willing, in that context. But here we're thinking of the person who's just consumed with self, who doesn't seek God by faith, who has turned aside to seek himself or herself. And Psalm 10, verse 2 says, The wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire goes on, verse 4, the wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is not in all his thoughts, as the King James says, or here, God is in none of his thoughts. Later on, verse 6, he said in his heart, I shall not be moved. I shall never be in adversity. He goes on later, It says all his thoughts are there is no God. So here's the point. Here's the point. Uh, If you seek yourself, you're going to lose yourself. If you seek to satisfy and please yourself at the expense of seeking God and diligently striving after Him, then you're going to lose yourself. You're going to lose your soul for all eternity. That's why the Bible calls unbelieving people lost sinners. 
You've gone your own way. You've gone in the direction that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. And as you're on that path, as you've been like a sheep scattered and and you're straying after your own way, you are lost. And in the Bible, in Greek, the word lost, when it speaks of a lost sheep, is the word for destroyed. You're destroyed. You're ruined. And you're on the way to everlasting ruin at which point there is no hope for you. That's what it means to seek yourself. That's what it means to seek yourself. And when you seek yourself, you often find yourself running after the things of this world. It's not just seeking self, but when you seek self, then you turn aside after things. After things. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says that what what are the things that the Gentiles seek after? What are the questions that the Gentiles are asking? What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Things. Good things, necessary things, sinful things, vain things, greedy things, all kinds of things. Jesus says the Word of the Gospel is choked out by all kinds of things. When He tells the parable of the sower, He says that uh, when the the thorns choked out the Word of God, it was just the desire, the care for many things. Things. Food. Clothing. A house. An education. Money. Security. Health. uh, Relationships. But of course, money. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. We need to be careful because... Money allows you to store value so that you can use it on all kinds of things. You can use money to invest in your education. You can use it to uh, you know, give a gift to someone to help uh, further a relationship. You can use money to, to buy a house or a boat or a bicycle or a, a new set of clothing. Uh, you, can, you can use money or you can let it sit in the account and just feel secure. And Proverbs 2.4 says you need to seek the Lord and His wisdom as you would seek silver, as you would seek gold. Biblical wisdom personified in Christ, seek her as silver. We have no problem seeking silver. The natural man is not unable in any respect to seek out silver and gold and money and wealth but he's unable to seek God because he loves these things too much and he will not part with them. And you see that with the rich young ruler. All he had to do was get rid of his earthly wealth. Of course, it had to be from the heart. He needed to repent. He needed to trust in Christ as his righteousness. But all he needed to do was obey that command and give all that he had to the poor, all of these things that are Nothing today. I mean, where is the wealth of the rich young ruler today? Where is it? Because if he didn't repent, his soul is in hell. He doesn't have his belongings. He doesn't have his great wealth. Where is it? Perhaps it was melted down and perhaps somebody in the world is wearing a piece of jewelry with some of the gold or silver that was owned by the rich young ruler. We don't know what happened to his wealth. But he doesn't have it anymore. It's gone. And yet, he chose the things of this world over against seeking God in the person of Jesus Christ. 
It's, it's not uncommon that people are general seekers. And they come into the life of the church and they want to hear about God's Word and they want to know how to have eternal life. But when they get the message that they were not expecting and they have to cut something off or cast something away and they begin to see that in order to buy this field of the kingdom, I need to sell everything else that I have. In order to seek out and receive this pearl of great price, I need to, I need to sell all and purchase it. And Jesus requires my full allegiance and loyalty and obedience. And they see that and like the rich young ruler, they walk away because they don't want to take their hands off of the thing that they love. And in some cases, it's just outright sinful things that people are clinging to. That they've turned aside to sins. And often, the progression of these sermon points is the progression in people's lives. They begin by just having this natural inclination to seek themselves and to do what they want to do and, and their own pleasure is their God, and then they begin to find uh, that they love the things of this world. And so they grab hold of all the things of this world. And they're not seeking God because they don't want to give up their things. And then pretty soon, they're not content with good things, virtuous things, necessary things, things that are not in themselves sinful. And then they become addicted to sinful things. That's how Satan works. That's how the world works. That's how the sinful heart of man works. And you see an example of this set before us by Solomon in Proverbs 23. Proverbs 23, verse 29. Listen to this. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long at the wine. Those who go in search of a mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. See, the Bible's confronting the sin of drunkenness where we begin to love the wine. And it just sparkles. And it just tastes so good. And it's so desirable. And we just have to have it. And we just have to have more and more. And it's swirling around. And it's sparkling. And he says, at the last, it bites like a serpent. It stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things. And your heart will utter perverse things. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Yes, you will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, or like one who lies at the top of the mast, saying, they have struck me, but I was not hurt. They have beaten me, but I did not feel it. So in other words, you're experiencing, this is not like some kind of uh, boxer who's like, yeah, you know, I don't feel the pain. No, this is actually saying that you are experiencing pain and misery and you don't even know it. You don't even realize it. Your life is being destroyed. You're getting beaten to a pulp by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And your life is like a rug being just pulled out from under you. 
and you don't even realize it and you don't even feel it because you're addicted to this sinful thing in your life, whether it's drunkenness, whether it's whatever else it may be. You can't get enough. You can't stop. It's destroying you. And then, when shall I awake that I may seek another drink? That's what you're seeking. Seeking yourself, seeking the things of the world, and ultimately uh, seeking sin itself. And this is very sad. Um, The only hope for the natural man The only hope for the natural man. The only hope that the natural man would truly seek God through Jesus Christ is that the natural man would be sought and saved by God Himself. That's the only hope for a lost sinner. You're you're like me if I didn't have my son with me in the woods when we're hunting. Um, You've turned aside and you're lost. And... Nothing's going to get you back on the path unless somebody seeks you out and rescues you. And that is what God has done through the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're told that in Isaiah 53, verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray, each one in his own direction, but the Lord has laid upon Christ the iniquities of us all. Jesus came to die for the iniquity of our self-seeking, for the iniquity of our worldly pursuits, for the iniquity of our obsession and lust after sinful things. He died to pay the penalty for our rebellious turning aside and refusal to seek the Lord. He took that iniquity. He paid the penalty for that sin on the cross. And therefore, Luke 19, verse 10, after He comes to Zacchaeus, who's up in the tree, and He comes, He says, Zacchaeus, Come down from there. I'm coming to your house today. And Zacchaeus receives the message of the Gospel with joy. And he repents of his sin. And he rejoices. And Jesus says, salvation has come to that house. And then Jesus says this. He says that that He has come to seek and save that which was lost. That's why Jesus came into the world. To die for the guilt of that lostness and rebellion and turning aside. And to go then and seek and save lost sinners. John chapter 3 verses 3 through 6 tells us again and again and again in many different ways. Alluding to many different passages of the Bible. Jesus tells Nicodemus, you're the teacher of Israel. You should know this. It's all throughout the Bible that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. You can't see it. You can't enter it. John 6.44 No one comes to Christ unless the Father draws that sinner. Unless He is drawn by the Father. And the Lord will raise Him up at the last day. You can't in yourself seek the Lord. You can inquire, and I would urge you to do that. If you're outside of Christ, sit under the preaching of the Word. Open your Bible. Ask questions Learn. God has designed His covenant to to have uh, just an open door for inquiry of all kinds. And yet, and yet, only the Lord can enable you to seek His face. Isaiah 65, which Paul quotes later in our epistle here, 
Isaiah 65. The first two verses. I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. Now the second instance of the word seek is a different Hebrew word. And really it means to ask or request. What this is saying is that there were lost sinners who sought the Lord. I was sought by those who didn't ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me or they did not initiate seeking me. They they were not the ones that ultimately brought this about. They weren't sitting there asking. This is talking about the Gentiles to a nation that was not called by my name. Um, This is telling us that the Lord has initiated this seeking on His part to produce in the hearts of these sinners a seeking on their part. That is how sinners are saved. Do they seek the Lord consciously? Yes. Are they supposed to sit back and wait for some mystical experience? Wait for, wait for some mystical feeling that the Lord has now initiated the process. Okay, there's, you know, you're cleared to go and seek the Lord. No, not at all. But the point is, everyone who seeks the Lord and finds the Lord has first been sought by Him. And that's a humbling thought. That's a very humbling thought. It's a humbling thought for those who have sought and found the Lord who are believers right now. That you didn't seek the Lord because of anything in you that's superior to the people who are still turned aside in their sinful rebellion. It's not something that you get credited to your account. I sought the Lord. No, you sought Him, but you weren't really asking for Him. He took the initiative. He sought and saved you in your lost condition and enabled you to seek Him by faith. But it's also humbling for those who may be outside of Christ. Those who say, you know what? I don't buy into this. I don't think God is sovereign. I don't think man is totally depraved in that way. If I chose to turn aside, then I can choose to seek God at any moment. If that's, if that's your perspective on your decision to turn aside, that you can seek Him, you've just chosen not to. You're not unable. If you decide, you can choose to seek Him at any time. And you are fully capable of doing it. It's really the ball's just in your court and you are sovereign over your own decisions and over your own destiny. And you see the world objecting. Not just people in the church, but the world objects to this doctrine of total inability. They say, if it was the sinner's choice to turn aside, then the sinner has the capacity to seek God. If they've got the capacity to reject Him, they've got the capacity to seek Him. But that's not how it worked with the rich young ruler. We're told that the rich young ruler chose to cling to his wealth, chose to leave salvation on the table, chose to walk away from Jesus Christ and salvation. He chose to do that. 
He went away sorrowful because he had great wealth, because he had consciously chosen to keep his wealth. He didn't want to give it up. So there's no question that he chose to turn aside from the Gospel. But notice how Jesus characterizes that incident. Matthew 19, verse 22, but when the young man heard that saying, that he had to sell everything and follow Christ, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. That's how hard it is. In other words, it's impossible. And people try to massage this text to make it mean something other than a literal camel. It's going through the literal eye of a needle. But Jesus clarifies this. Verse 25, the disciples are greatly astonished. They say, who then can be saved? Verse 26, Jesus looked at them and said to them, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And my friends, one aspect of seeking God is humbling yourself and realizing that you can't seek Him. Recognizing that if you seek Him today, it's all of His grace. It's nothing of your own strength. Recognizing your own total inability and your own guilt and sinfulness. You've got the vice grip of human sin saying you're guilty, you can't be justified. You're sinful, you can't even seek Him. Humility. And yet, my friends, He commands us to seek Him as He commanded Lazarus to come forth. Lazarus was dead. Lazarus didn't have a working sense of hearing to hear the command. That's how the Gospel works. The Gospel says, seek the Lord while He may be found. Seek Him now. And it says, don't don't dwell upon yourself and upon your inability. Don't dwell upon your sin. Look to Jesus. Seek Him to save you from your sins. Seems like a contradiction. Seems like a paradox. Seems like if God has to seek us first, then we need to sit back and wait for Him to move, and we need to have some felt sense that He's seeking us, and yet that is not how it works. You seek Him. You run to Him. You confess your sins to Him. You cling to Him and you believe in Him. And you believe that He'll reward you with salvation and eternal life and blessedness. Sadly, the visible church is filled with natural men and women who seek the Lord in a different way, in a self-centered and self-deceived way, in a half-hearted and mercenary way in an external and non-saving manner. We can read about this in many passages in the Scriptures. Psalm 78 and verse 34. God's judging His people in the wilderness. When He slew them, then they sought Him. And they returned and sought earnestly for God. Verse 36, nevertheless, they flattered him with their mouth and they lied to him with their tongue. 
for their heart was not steadfast with him, nor were they faithful in his covenant. And of course, he was merciful. He didn't destroy them entirely, but, but they came in a disingenuous, hypocritical, self-seeking way. They sensed the judgment to come and they, they simply, as a knee-jerk reaction, okay, we'll seek the Lord. But it wasn't a faith that produced hope in a loving, merciful God. It wasn't a hope that produced love. I seek the one I love. It was a shallow and mercenary seeking. See the same thing in Isaiah chapter 58, verse 2. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. Sounds pretty good. Sounds great. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching God. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? The Lord goes on to condemn them in their fasting as He says elsewhere in Zechariah, did you do it for me? For me? Did you fast for me? No, they did it for their own pleasure and had all kinds of corrupt loopholes. And, and they trampled underfoot the Sabbath day. These people sought Him daily. They came to worship weekly. They were involved in the outward ordinances of the Lord and seemed to delight in biblical knowledge and biblical truth. Yet the Lord says that this is not true seeking. In fact, the very first verse of the chapter says, lift up your voice like a trumpet, tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. The Pharisees did all of their religious works out of a desire to seek the applause and the approval and the reputation from other people. We're told in John 6 that Many sought Jesus not because of the sign that He did pointing to His Messiahship, but they sought Him and they sought to make Him King and they chased after Him because of the loaves, because of the bread. We're told that Esau sought the blessing, sought the inheritance. And when he couldn't have it, he found no place for repentance, though he sought it, not repentance, but he sought the blessing with tears. He wanted a piece of God so he could get a piece of the inheritance and a piece of the blessing. And people wanted a piece of bread. And they wanted the outward advantages. But they didn't seek Him first. They didn't seek Him early. They didn't seek Him. And there are many in the church who intend to seek the Lord at a more convenient time in the future. Jesus says there will be many on the last day of judgment who are knocking on the door, seeking to get into the kingdom, and the door will be shut in their face. Seek the Lord while He may be found. There may not come a more convenient time in the future. There are other people who question the genuineness of this invitation. But my friends, Isaiah 45.19 says that God has not said to His people Israel, seek Me in vain. He hasn't given a vain command or an empty word of invitation. If you seek Him with all your heart, if you seek Him, you will find Him. Jeremiah 29.13 and 14. 
I will be found of you. It's a genuine invitation. Other people regard seeking as a mere mental ascent, a momentary, one-time pittance, a perfunctory ritual that they go through rather than an intentional, heartfelt, vigorous, time-consuming, self-sacrificial, diligent, lifelong activity. And so, there's this shallow view of seeking. Well, it's just a state of mind. I'm a Christian because I generally like God and I like church and you know, I, I pick up the Bible every once in a while and so on and so forth. My friends, understand, seeking God is time-consuming. Seeking God is going to force you to put other activities in your schedule aside. I'm not just talking about in the daily Christian life. I'm saying if you're an unbeliever and you're going to seek the Lord, okay, maybe, maybe you know the Gospel and you're ready to believe, but it may be the case. There's a, you don't even understand. You need to get in that Bible. And that means putting other things aside. And that means making it a priority to seek Him first, to seek Him early. There are a lot of things the rich young ruler could have been doing, but he ran to Jesus to ask the question to receive the answer. And, and seeking the Lord, even by way of general inquiry, but how much more as a diligent saving exercise, you need to take time and sacrifice diligently to seek the Lord while He may be found. Finally, some are paralyzed. I'll mention this. I've said it before. I'm just going to close with this because it's perhaps in a Calvinistic church the greatest objection. Some people are paralyzed in the church waiting for some mystical token that God is seeking them. You're not going to know God has sought you till you've sought Him. Seek Him while He may be found. And once you've believed, you'll make your calling and election sure and you'll be able to look in the rearview mirror and know that God sought you and bought you and brought you to salvation. But in, in terms of your conscious experience, you need to seek Him now. You need to seek Him first. You need to seek Him early. Don't wait for some special fuzzy feeling. You need to grab hold of Christ. Believe Him. Confess your sins turn to Him and receive Him. That's the only way that you can possibly be saved. You need to take the kingdom of heaven by force. Jesus doesn't say, wait for Me. He says, come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Hosea 10, 12, and 13 says this, now is the time to seek the Lord. Now is the time to seek the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious God, enable us to seek first Your kingdom and Your righteousness. To trust that You will enable us to order all of the other concerns and priorities in our lives in due course. But may we seek You first. May we seek You early. May we seek You not only once or twice, but every day of our lives. And most especially on this Sabbath day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.